0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Today's the Day Changemakers podcast. I am Jody Grinwald. This week, my guest is Vu speaker and author of the blog NonprofitAF.com. Not knowing that not-for-profit work was going to be his calling, he received a BA in psychology and a master's in social work. After working as the ED of RBC, a nonprofit in Seattle, he now travels across the country sharing his insight and speaks to how the not-for-profit sector really needs to own its incredible power. We have an honest conversation about how sometimes funders have an unrealistic view of how the sector works. People who work for -for not-for-profits need to make a salary, yet in many cases, administrative costs cannot be written into grants. Vu uses a great analogy here about a fire hose and water. He teaches me a new word that was taught to him, biz-splaining. Vu shares his rule of thirds when it comes to not-for-profit boards. We talk neurodiversity, judgment, and creating happy and healthy working environments within a sector that is continuously stressed and looked at through a microscope. A sector that is more than just needed, that is necessary. Why is a unicorn potentially the mascot of the nonprofit sector? Vu mentions that maybe it should be a platypus instead. Please subscribe to the Today is the Day Changemakers YouTube channel. Stream this podcast on all streaming sites. Reviews and shares are always welcomed and help us to be heard. Like us on Facebook and Instagram by going to Today is the Day Live It. To learn more about Today is the Day Consulting and Coaching Services and the new Today is the Day Changemakers Connective, go to todayisthedayliveit.com. Sign up for our mailing list to be notified when new events and networking opportunities become available. Also, I am the CEO and co-founder of the Zach G. Kids Foundation. To learn more about how the organization is connecting children with a financial need to an ongoing creative outlet, go to applaudourkids.org. The views expressed by all today's The Day Changemakers podcast guests are their own. Their appearance on the Today's the Day Changemakers podcast does not imply any endorsement of them or any entity that they represent. Have a great week, everyone. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Today's the Day Changemakers podcast. I am Jody Grinwald, and like I say, every single week, I get to interview the most incredible humans that are just doing wonderful work in their corner of the world and beyond. And today I have Vule. Hi, Vu. How are you?
1: Hi, Jody, I'm good. Thank you for having me.
0: Well, I'm so happy to be here. I've been so excited about this conversation because many people know that my background is in nonprofit and this is what you, you do and talk about all the time. So I'm just going to read your bio and then we'll, we'll have a nice conversation. Sound good? All right. Awesome. So Vu Le writes the blog, Nonprofit AF, and that's at nonprofitaf.com. He is the former executive director of RVC, a nonprofit in Seattle that promotes social justice by supporting leaders of color, strengthening organizations led by communities of color, and fostering collaboration between diverse communities. Vu is a founding board member of community-centric fundraising, a movement that aims to ground fundraising practices in racial and social justice. Vu was born in Vietnam. He and his family came to the US when Vu was eight. He spent several years in Seattle mo- before moving to Memphis, Tennessee for high school and St. Louis for college and graduate school. He has a BA in psychology and a master's in social work. I love this part, Vu. He is a vegan, a father of two kids, ages eight and five, and a staunch defender of the Oxford comma. It's so good. Gr- and it's very and important. A universal- it is. It is very important. And a unicorn lover, because look behind you. I, lo- I love that whole thing. Whole so what's, just quickly, what's the uh, Oxford comma piece in your bio?
1: Oh, I think it's just a very important tool and punctuation for us to use. It brings clarity. It makes sentences look better. So yeah, that's, that's one of those hills that I, I am willing to die on, is the Oxford comma. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, uh, some of us, like myself, love commas. Sometimes I may add more than we need, but it's all good as long as I'm using them, right? <laughs> yeah. So, where did you grow up, Vu?
1: I was born in Vietnam, and I came over here when I was eight years old. And we uh, we spent some time in Philadelphia, then Seattle, and then moved to Memphis, Tennessee. But I'm, I'm back here in Seattle now.
0: So, out of all the places you lived, what was your favorite? Would you say?
1: Uh, they all were really interesting, right? I think I I think they each were an important part of my my upbringing right I do love Vietnam I have lots of relatives over there I uh Memphis was really wonderful people are just really friendly Philadelphia was really great but right now I'm, I'm living in Seattle it's uh it's great our, our weather is generally good and you know people recycle and it's it's, it's wonderful here
0: well that is good recycling is wonderful that's awesome <laughs> So was there a pivotal, pivotal moment in your childhood that you remember that kind of put you on the course that you wound up on?
1: Uh, I think it was uh, probably when we first arrived to the United States and we landed in Philadelphia and we didn't speak English at all. I, um, and then I found myself lost on the bus, right? And yeah, I was, it, it was the school bus, but I, I, I got off at the wrong stop and ended up in downtown Philadelphia. This little eight-year-old who couldn't speak the language and had no idea what to do. So I, I just ended up wandering downtown Philly by myself. Uh, and then I remember that my uh, my my mom had put our her friends' numbers into a, a little book, a notebook, and put it into my backpack. And she said, you know, if you ever get lost, here's this notebook and here's a quarter that you use, go and, and call and call one of these numbers. So and I didn't know how to use the payphone. So I kind of stood there with like, Holding a quarter outstretched like this, to, to be like, "Can someone help me use this phone?" And a lot of people just, you know, they were busy and they probably didn't see this little kid and they walked by. But there was one person, and she stopped and helped me to uh, to make the phone call. But I remember that because I was like, you know, like I I I I I remember what it's like to feel lost, and I feel like a lot of people that we're trying to help in in this work are like just lost and they just want to someone to help them get back and find their way home.
0: Wow. That that's a, what what an, an incredible story and scary. Like as you were talking about it I could feel myself feeling, you know, that that lonely feeling. I had I was lost once on the beach. I was oh. like 8. Yes. I went the wrong I went the wrong way. The bathroom was right there. I went the wrong way. And I yeah, it was hot and it was scary. And I totally understand. And I remember going up to an older person because I remember my parents always saying how kind, right? So like grand, like a grandma-grandpa type of feel, right? So I went up to an older person who helped me find a lifeguard. And then so you brought me back to that. I hadn't thought about that story for a long time. What drew you, would you say, to the nonprofit world?
1: Well, I was supposed to be a a doctor or um, a a lawyer, preferably a doctor and a lawyer, you know. (laughs) Wow, wow. My parents are like, come on, one of you needs to be a doctor. And guess what? None of us became doctors in the the family. Um, But I was pre-med for a couple of years. And then I I just realized, you know, I don't really I don't really want to be a doctor. I mean, not that I mean, doctors are wonderful. Right. But I was just like, this is not the right path for me. I, I want to do something that that's different. And, and I want to go where maybe there's not a lot of people have gone. And so I thought about social work because there's not a lot of us from the Vietnamese community who decide to go down that path. Right. And uh, so I decided, I don't know. I've, I've always been someone who t- likes to carve my own path a bit, which gets me branded as a, as a weirdo, you know, um, yeah, a family can be a little mean. <laughs> but, and I, uh, yeah, so I, I got into this path and, and I just realized like I, I really, I really like the people that I, I work with and I like the work that I'm doing. And yeah, I, the community doesn't really understand it sometimes. My family has no idea what I do. And yeah, they, they still send me information, you know, like, hey, here's this job that we found, you know. <laughs> when you finally start volunteering, you, you, maybe you should go down this way. <laughs> I well, don't know. It's but I feel true, like
0: right? <laughs> Most people don't turn around and say, I'm going to be a nonprofit leader. Like the, it, it just in my growing up in my world, that was I, I don't even know if I knew what nonprofits were growing up. My family wasn't really that engaged and involved until I got older. Were, same for yeah. you.
1: Yeah. And I think it's it's unfortunate, right? Cause it's, it's a great feel. I mean, there's lots of things we need to address in terms of areas for improvement, but I really, li- I really like it. I, I like the people here. I like the fact that we're all trying to make the world better. We suck at a whole bunch of stuff, but like our hearts are there usually. And I, I really appreciate that.
0: Well, that, that brings me to a question that, that I, I've I've been looking forward to asking because I think we both agree, and so many of us do, that the nonprofit sector is the only sector that talks about what it's not, right? And we've called ourselves nonprofit or not for profit. And I heard Simon Sinek say, for impact, the sector should be called for impact. And I fell in love with that because we're making an impact everywhere we go, as a not when you're a nonprofit organization. Have you thought about? What else it could be called besides nonprofit? Or do you like? I, I I know that I've heard you say that it really doesn't necessarily title the industry correctly.
1: Yeah, I think this is has been a thorn in our side for a bit. Uh, yeah, I mean it, it is it is weird to call it ourselves like nonprofit. Sure, at the same time, I feel like in some ways, it's a distracting argument, right? I feel like there's a whole bunch of other things we need to talk about. We need to talk about why we exist in the first place. We need to talk about taxes. We've got to talk about the role of government in addressing these different issues. And I don't want us to get distracted, you know, by, by this or like other seemingly minor issues. I mean, there's lots of people who do amazing things regardless of their names or titles or, or whatever, right? Uh, if we're going to change it, I don't know. I don't like using jargony words, Uh, you know. uh, I don't know. If if I had to choose a different name, I would probably call us the community benefits sector. And all of us would be community benefits organizations. CBOs.
0: CBOs. I like that. I'm even writing that down. That's that that sounds great. Now, I I agree with you. I think the only thing is is that when we're the nonprofits in the room and we and and we're, you know, searching out the people we want to meet and they see us, they're like, "Uh-oh, here comes the nonprofit going to ask for money." And I think that's the larger picture of of the view of who we are as opposed to those who are making a difference in the community. It's it's kind of kind of like telling our story better, in some cases, um, without the stigma. I don't know, I'm sure you've heard, and I've seen you do this, you know, the professional beggar type of, uh, you know, I know, I, unfortunately, I've had family members, you know, who aren't very educated on and said those words. So I'm not, not close-knit, not close-knit, mind you, I will tell you. Um, But that's kind of the, how do we change that? If we don't change the name, and we keep it, or I love your community benefits, how do we change that in your mind, change that stigma?
1: We need to own our power. I feel like our sector attracts a lot of really nice, very caring people, right? And oftentimes we become, we, we are also conflict avoidance. And we're not nearly as assertive, I feel like, in, in, in certain cases where we should be. Right? So I think in some ways this is like, this is our fault for really kind of putting up with this um, and kind of creating these sort of mentalities like, I feel like we have a whole bunch of philosophies that we need to to get out of, you know, like we have internalized this sort of inferiority complex and we've kind of let's in many ways for-profits who do important things, right? But we kind of let them talk down to us. And my friend, Allison Carney calls it bisplaining. It's like mansplaining. But when a business talks down to a nonprofit as if we have no idea what we're doing. Like you know, like have you heard of this thing that we do in for profits? It's called accounting. I'm like, yes, of course we have. We have. We are the best accountants in the world. When you have to Frankenstein bits of funding together and play funding Sudoku with multiple sources, you know, like people are like, here's five thousand dollars that you can only spend on paper clips on Tuesdays. Go and end poverty, and and report to me what you did with my specific money, but only from this month to this to this month because that's my fiscal year. And I don't care if that doesn't align with your fiscal year. Like when we have all these restrictions, we have to be the best accountants in the entire world. Um, so I feel like we need to just own our, just our power a little bit more and just go out there. And we are not professional beggars. We are filling in the gaps left behind by governments by, and by market forces. Right? We're doing the community a huge favor by doing this, all this stuff that the government should really be taking care of. So right. stop talking down to us
0: exactly and i love that and own your power and that that is so perfectly put because we we do i swear we do gymnastics consistent and other gymnastics i mean when i started in, you know starting the nonprofit there were no projections it's like okay can you get that crystal ball out and there was no history you know and and even at when you're a newer organization you're still dealing with a crystal ball i mean we all are anyway right because when we do projections or budgets it's like a hope and a prayer for for all of us if there's not a pandemic <laughs> <laughs> in the middle
1: of yeah, that. I remember this one person who worked at Microsoft coming into and joining our board. She was wonderful in many ways, but she was just like, "I don't understand why you can't project out for the next three years." I'm like, "I can't even project out until next Wednesday. I have no idea who's going to donate or whether this funder is going to re re renew their grants, whether they will shift priorities, like all sorts of stuff. Like this is the sort of the, the context that we're working in." So I think that a lot of for-profit folks, again, who do important things, but I think they would be absolutely just confounded if they had to work with the same restrictions that we have had, we just kind of take for granted that we just have to deal with them.
0: Absolutely. And one of the things that you write a lot about, and I very much appreciate, and I want to thank you for it, is about the fact that about salaries for nonprofit professionals. I, I am like I applaud you from from behind my my computer or my phone when I read your your stories about this because we deal with this consistently. If any of this money is going to go to admin costs, we do not fund it's like. But how? How? Tell me how I make this because I didn't take a salary for two years when I first start when we first started the foundation, and then you're like, okay, you can't live like this, right? You, you, can, you it's going to go, it's going to go down the tube. So. The thing is, we have to be able to have equal salaries for the people who are trying to do this incredible work and make a difference in the world. So do you want to elaborate a little bit more? I I love what your take on this.
1: So we we need to be paid. You know, this is not, I, I feel like we've allowed this sort of narrative that the people who get to work here are doing it out of the goodness of their heart that it's actually not a real profession. It's like volunteerism, the way that my family thinks of it. Right? This is not like a real job to a lot of people. Like the real jobs are in like corporate and government and academia and and no just like really nice hippies go into the nonprofit sector and <laughs> and that is ridiculous that is a destructive narrative everyone deserves to be paid equitably and you know and also this idea that we've also up around overhead we've also been perpetuating this I still see a lot of organizations saying stuff like you know ninety five percent of every dollar goes to direct programming only five percent goes to admin and and garbage expenses like professional development and, and rent, right? It's, it's inane, and, and we put up with it. And I kind of liken us to like firefighters trying to put out the fires of injustice, right? And every, every three or four steps, someone stops us and says, hey, I want to make sure that the money I'm giving you to put out these fires is being spent on the, the water and not the hose, what is your hose-to-water ratio? Also, I don't want any of this money to be spent on the firefighters either. You know, I want all this money to just go to water. And because we're nice people who are used to be putting up with all of this, all of this shit, we're just like, no, 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 we found someone else. Who, uh, who, who is paying for the hose? You're, you're only paying for the water. It's ridiculous. Because the more time we spend putting up with like questions like this, the less time we're putting out fires, right? They're spreading. Because we've been too nice to push back on just inane, insipid ideas like overhead.
0: Yeah, I was just reading a grant yesterday, actually, that said if if any more than X percent—I won't even say the percentage—is goes to admin, we will not fund. And it's like, well, it's so it's so difficult. I've had people say to me that, oh, so is this your full-time job? You know, you know what I mean. <laughs> so, so I know that you know this so well, and. Um, How do we fix it? Vu, how do we fix it?
1: Well, we got to start fighting back. I I know one colleague, an executive director who told me that every year uh, her city's local newspaper would publish a list of the top 10 organizations with the highest overhead rates. And she's like, we're just deathly afraid that we're going to be on that list. And another colleague was like, why do you give this list so much power? Why don't you write, why don't you get like 10 other executive directors to sign a letter saying that this is actually destructive. You're not helping. You're actually harming the people we're serving by perpetuating uh, ineffective philosophies like this. But we don't don't stop to think, you know what? Let's start putting up with this. Let's start fighting back. That foundation that, that you just mentioned a minute ago, like they need to be called out publicly by name. I've started a hashtag called crappy funding practices where colleagues will DM me like foundations and RFPs that they find to be ridiculous, like grant proposal requests that are ridiculous. And they're like, look at this, look at this foundation. And I will call them out by name. And, and this is kind of what we need to start doing now because being nice hasn't really worked in, in the sector. We've been way too nice.
0: So I, again, I want to applaud you. I, that's incredible. And how did you get to this place, right? To, to put together nonprofit AF. And and I know that you worked for our, our VC, and I do want to mention that in a few minutes. But how did you get to to decide, you know what, I want to I call people out. I want to stand up tall and let people know and shout it from the rooftops that we can't keep doing what we're doing.
1: Well, I feel like I, I've reached a point where I, I have you know, I have built up some privilege and a platform. So it gives me uh, a lot more leverage, right? And leeway to it, to do things. But the reality is, you know, like women of color, especially have been calling out these terrible practices for years and oftentimes get punished for it. Right. So I, I, I feel like those of us who have more privileges and a platform, we need to do a much better job kind of calling stuff out and taking the brunt of the, of the, of the flack. Right. Uh, I get a lot of people getting very mad at me. I get people sending me hate mail and, and stuff. And, you know, it's not really fun, although I, I do think that this, <laughs> this is an indication that it's working, right? So, but again, those of us who have more privilege, we need to do a better job kind of, you know, kind of do, calling things out so that our colleagues who've been doing it for a long time and who are really exhausted, they can take a little break.
0: Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and I know that there are, there are some things written about helping colleagues take like a sabbatical and a paid sabbatical. I, I think you've said that in one of your things too. And, and I think that's incredible. It would be amazing if it could happen. And I know, I won't say the foundation is, I know of a foundation who really wants to move in that direction to help make that happen. They just haven't done it yet.
1: Well, they need to do this. You know what I mean? Like, when is a better time than to do this, than now, than, than to do this, you know, to do this? Like, it makes no sense. Like, I, I, I feel like a lot of foundations have gone into this terrible habit of toxic, I call it toxic intellectualizing, where they just love, and this is very pervasive in our sector, which is, you know, we just love talking and reading white papers and essays and, you know, logic models and whatever, reports and things, and think that we're actually doing something. And having tons and tons of conversations, you know, when the reality is like, we don't have time for this. Communities have been so affected by the pandemic, by systemic injustice for such a long time. And right now, over the past several years, it's, it's like I, I compare it to like end Games, right? Endgame, like the Avengers Endgame, like the Marvel movies, where Thanos, like this evil person just who just wants to like destroy half the universe. And... All of these heroes, superheroes assemble to fight this, like, you know, this, this villain. And, and now we're we're kind of at this stage. And if if the if the if the Avengers were like the foundations, you know, we would have like Iron Man saying, um, I'm thinking of only giving out 5% of my resources to fight Thanos because I'm saving 95% for future Thanoses, right? <laughs> <laughs> Captain Marvel will be like, um, I think what we need to do is. Start a two-year think tank and then write a report about who gets affected most by Thanos. And then two years later, a white paper is like, guess what, everyone? We did two years of research and we found out that it's women of color and disabled people who are most likely going to die because of Thanos. And everyone's like, oh, my gosh, that's amazing. That you spent all this time and did all this research. And then Dr. Strange is like, um, I think that we need to like work with Thanos because it's too political for us to oppose him. You know, maybe we should like try to meet halfway with him. Maybe we should just like have him kill only a fourth of the universe and not a half. Let's meet him halfway. This is what philanthropy has been like, progressive philanthropy. And because we're very nice, we put up with this and we need to stop.
0: No, we are. We are. I like that. We are very nice and we are trying to, to, to keep things together. And we want we, it's true, though. How many times do we thank a donor? Right, and I know you've written about that too. It's the, but, and, and then there's those that don't, and I don't want to say that they shouldn't, they need to. But it's like, thank you to the thank you for the thank you and, and you know. <laughs> I, I do agree with the handwritten thank you though. I'm not a lover of the, you know, just regular, you know, templated thank you. But I think, I think a handwritten thank you goes a long way. Would you agree with that?
1: I think, look, I love handwritten thank you notes. I like uh, receiving them. I keep every single one that I get. I, I write them when i when I can. I don't have an issue with them per se. I only have an issue with them when they are kind of weaponized in in the in the world. like for example, requiring job candidates to write handwritten they and punishing them for not because if you don't spell this out in your in your job posting like. Please submit your resume and cover. And if you get an interview, please make sure you write us a handwritten thank you note. Here are the addresses of every interview panel member. So you please write, make sure you write them a handwritten thank you note. If you don't do that, then this is a written and like an unwritten rule that is designed for people who grew up here, mostly white job candidates, right? It's the same with like with with donors, you know. And then we wonder why we we're using these very white Victorian era practices, requiring everyone to do it. And and then we wonder why we're not getting diverse donors or diverse fundraisers, et cetera. Um, because the reality is not not everyone thinks this way. But I think the, the issue that I have a bigger issue with is like this constant, like one-sidedness of the gratitude. I call it the asymmetric requirements of gratitude. Arg, okay? <laughs> like this is where, and we see this in the world, not just in our sector, but like, um, you know, like uh, you are, if you work in retail, you're expected to be thankful to customers. Uh, job candidates are expected to be thankful to, to employers. non are expected to be thankful to donors, etc. When the reality is that we cannot get anything done if there's only one party, right? Both are required, but yet one party, usually whoever has less money and power has to be the one who has to be more grateful. I feel like our idea of gratitude needs to change. And this is probably what I'll be writing about sometime this month or next month, is like this, we got to radically reimagine gratitude, we should be grateful to one another, because we're in this work together, we're in the world together, we should be courteous to one another. But one person constantly going around chasing after another one and feeling thankful. I feel like that is has become extremely toxic and preventing us from doing our work.
0: Couldn't agree with you more because, right, there should be gratitude also for the work that the nonprofits are doing to make the world a better place in their community. And you're right. We don't, you know, at times hear a a lot of thank yous from that because we're getting the money from the donors and or, or or the sponsors and they feel like they're getting, not all, I don't want to say that, but some feel like they're giving so the 25 thank yous should follow. And and it's <laughs> it doesn't need to be that way. But I will not say you all. I mean, for most part, I, I'm I'm very lucky. You know, the applauder kids foundation has amazing and incredible donors. It's just that um I think there is that that kind of vibe about it that you just always want to be saying thank you. But that's that's almost like a taught behavior as you've been in the nonprofit world. I feel like I didn't start in nonprofit, I started in for profit. So when I got into nonprofit, I was very much taught about. The gratitude piece of it, and I think vice versa, it's not done. That they're not taught about the gratitude part of it.
1: Well, yeah, this is this is why I've been kind of, kind of working on this community centric fundraising movement, right? Which is really ground fundraising in in in, in racial equity and transformative justice, right? And that's going to look a little bit differently because I feel like we have been taught as fundraisers to be extremely grateful and to constantly thank people and so on. And every training I've attended about fundraising is like, this is how you thank people. This is how you retain donors, how you get them to give more. And I am not so sure that's actually working, right? I, I kind of feel like it's, it's like, I don't know, I kind of liken it to like, I don't know, husband-centric marriages, right? <laughs> You're know, like, I would, I would love it if every single time I, I did the dishes or something, my partner would write me a handwritten thank you note. Know, it's like, dear Vu. Thank you so much for doing the dishes today because you did the dishes. Our family is stronger. You've made the community stronger. We are so grateful, the children and I, that you are here and that you had done the dishes today and made our family stronger. Like, yeah, I would love that. I would love getting a note like that every single time I did the dishes, right? But is that what we should be doing? We're in this sort of social contract with one another that we are trying to make the world better. My role as a nonprofit is to run programs. Your role as a donor is to support that so that I can run these programs. And together we all benefit because we all exist in this community together. Then why should, you know, why should one person, why should I be the one thanking you all the time? right? Just like in a healthy marriage, like partners are grateful to one another because we have, each have different things that we could do that we're good at, right? But can you imagine one partner just constantly following around the other person to, to thank them? Does that sound like a, like an equitable marriage? It doesn't, yeah. it doesn't sound fun either. It sounds terrible.
0: It does sound terrible. PAM10 is a leader in IT enterprise solutions and staffing. They are driven to transform their clients' business performances. They do this every day by providing the clients with the best services and products. Products like BizLego, an online community platform, and Coleer, a unique learning management system. They also transform the lives of women and children through their associated nonprofits, SheTech, which supports women in and joining the technology field, and Sofkin, support organization for kids in need. PAM10, technology for social good. Go to PAM10.com for more information. Can we talk boards for a minute?
1: Yes, I, I always. Go-
0: <laughs> <laughs> so I'm also, I also help run the statewide and not-for-profit council for a membership organization. And one of the things we talked about, we just had a summit, was what the topic should be. And the board topic came up. Should we talk about board development? And here I was, because I know every, every nonprofit summit or chamber, whatever, they're always talking about board development. And I, I've been talking about board development since 2005. And I feel like, and I want to talk about DEI and boards next, but I w- I'm just saying, right, stating right now is how much more do we need to talk about the development of boards and getting board members to really understand their role? What are we missing? Because the conversation just keeps going round and round, I feel like.
1: We need to have a radical reimagining of boards, right? In many ways, we have kind of inherited the sort of board structure from, from corporations, right? Um, at least most of the things that don't work about boards. And we've taken them and and we start using them. And we think that this is the only way that that we can, this is the only format. And so all the trainings you've been talking about is how do we get this terrible structure to work, right? I have rule of one thirds. And I think one third of boards are actually really great and they're helpful to the organization. One third are completely useless. And one third are actually destructive to their mission. So that means two thirds of boards in the sector actually useless or destructive. And we don't acknowledge this, right? But how is this surprising? We're talking about a group of individuals who are very nice and well-meaning, who know oftentimes very little about nonprofits, who see 1% of the work that the staff does, and who oftentimes do not reflect the communities that we serve and have very, you know, they have very little limited life experiences around the issue areas that we're working on. And we give them vast power. How does this make any sort of sense at all? This is probably one of the biggest things that drive burnout in the sector uh, among executive directors is boards and how terrible they are. And we just won't admit to this. So instead of saying like, how do we make this slightly better? How do we get board members who can work within this crappy structure, you know, and train them how to work in this crappy structure so that they are less crappy? We start thinking about, you know, maybe we have a different structure where it's not so crappy. Because most of the things that we consider to be like, you know, legally required, they're just traditions that we pass on, like Robert's rules. Why do we use Robert's rules? Who's Robert? Why are we using his rules? Robert was like, a, like an army officer who in 1876 formalized Robert's rules into a book 150 years ago. And we're still using it. We're still using these rules. Right? And then we wonder, like why don't candidates of color want to to come to this like stodgy board that doesn't really work
0: yeah no, i i, I appreciate that and and that's the thing it's like we can't they go they sign the form we play it out lay it out you know we we hope you'll get a give or get of this amount we hope you'll bring in 10 more people you know the, and they sign the bottom of the form you know exactly what i'm talking about right the bullet points of these are the things you're going to do as a board member and then the internal meetings about, okay, John Smith, you know, James did not do these things. How are we going to hold them accountable? You know, can, you know, all of those kind of fun things. And you think we're all busy, right? And we're all, and and sometimes I've even given them like the, the letter to send out to their friends, right? You know, because you know, they're busy, but sitting on boards. I mean, I know people who are on 12, 15, 18 boards. It's incredible. How do you have the time, right, to do all the work required of those boards? What are your thoughts about being on that many boards?
1: I, I'm not necessarily opposed to it. I feel like if we can actually have a better reimagining around boards, like, for example, right now, I don't like the idea of boards as being this sort of like very protectionistic body really trying to guard the, the specific mission and its survival. I would like boards to be more expansive for them to be to think about their role as like connecting with other organizations and and, and supporting other missions as well because all of us are interrelated. All of our missions are interrelated, right? So like I, re, I, I remember t- having lunch with a friend of mine, another ED, who said that his board chair got mad at him because he introduced a funding opportunity to another uh, colleague, another ED, He was like, hey, I'm applying for this grant and maybe you apply, you could qualify too. You should think about applying too. He told this to his board member and the board member got mad at him, right? I don't, like we need to get out of that mindset, the sort of survivalism, protectionism mindset that many board members entrench. So if board members are like, you know what? I am thinking about like the ecosystem and our role within it. How do we lift up other nonprofits? How do we all work together to create a more, a better sector? then yeah, go ahead and join 10 boards if you have that sort of mentality, okay, right? But right now we don't have that. We have this sort of like, you must be, you must help this organization survive. You got to protect it um, and screw everyone else. You know, like that hasn't really been working. It's been really destructive, I think.
0: Yeah, I, I'm a big advocate for collaboration amongst nonprofits. and And one of the things about is bridging the gap between the two sectors and connecting the nonprofits to work better together. But now I want I really do want to talk about DEI in general but also on boards and you know af, after the the major incident that happened and all the change and all the education which we all needed all of us need you know relooking at the things that we've done in our lives and I I've, I've met some incredible people who have really been upfront and shared you know what I'm wrong I've been wrong I've gone about this wrong. But then what happened was, is all of a sudden some funders said, you know what, well, we're not gonna fund people unless their boards represent diversity and didn't give a lot of time to make that happen. Now, the way I wanna lay this out though is, is a lot of nonprofits didn't do the right thing to begin with and their boards didn't rec- na- you know, just naturally represent the communities that they served. And that was an eye opener. But then all of a sudden there was a turn that the foundations and others came out and said, well, if you don't have your board diverse, then we're not gonna fund you. So what happened is, is people just started to put people on their boards in some cases. I, I've seen a few cases of that. Not a lot, but a few in my own personal. And that I don't feel like is the right way either. So we, we have to stop checking boxes and really start looking at, you know, why do we not have the people that represent the community? And how do we go and get about getting those people to be more a part of our boards?
1: yeah this is an area that we we definitely need to work on as well. you know, like it, it's a very important area. Um, and our sector has really has has done a, a lot around sort of like the sort of white saviorism where I mean there's a lot it's a lot of of white uh, folks who want to do this, and of course they mean well, right? And but at the same time, I, I do feel like we need to really be very conscientious about who is actually having the power and the resources um, in in doing this work and whether we are centering the voices of the communities and ensuring that those who are most affected by systemic injustice are are leading in this work, right? So I can totally understand where you're coming from, Jody, of just like, you can't just pack people onto a board and still sort of maintain the sort of power structure and the sort of... Because what happens is that those people will feel tokenized and they will leave, right? And I've I've been there. Even someone who is as vocal as I am have felt tokenized. I remember being on uh, a board of like nine people. I was the only person of color and it just felt really terrible because all of my opinions kept getting shouted down. And even though I'm still very opinionated, I just got marked as, oh, there's that uppity boo again with his weird opinions, always contrasting and being contrarian with everyone, et cetera, right? So we need to do a much better job with this um, I do feel like, yes, I, I'm glad that funders are 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 focusing a little bit more on this because I do think representation is very important. It needs to be done right, you know, absolutely. And yeah, I'll, I'll stop there for now because I can go on for quite a long time
0: about this. <laughs> well, well, I, I the other question I, I would love to know uh, in, in the answer to if you have one, because this is a tough one, is how do those who didn't really represent their community the right way go about doing it the right way without just throwing the net out there, if you know what I mean.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, you have to start thinking about how you're doing all this. You must have a, you, you, you must be intentional about this, right. And actually have this conversation with, with the, with the team, with, with the boards and the staff and saying, Hey, we are, we are planning to, we, we need to start representing the communities that we serve. Here's what we need to start doing. We can start by having more conversations and trainings around this um, and then start really kind of looking at all, examining all the different practices that you have, right? We have a whole bunch of terrible, like Robert's Rules is, is one that I named, right? But there's like more deeper, more entrenched things. I talk about this like to do versus a to be culture, right? Many of us are used to a to-do culture. Like the first question we ask someone is like, how, what, what do you do when you, meet, when you meet them, right? Because we're very focused on what they can do, what they can do, what their profession is, what they can do for us in the organization. When many communities are like a to-be culture, where it's about what, who are you, where are you from, who are you connected to, what do you care about? And so you take someone from a to-be culture and you force them into a to-do culture, and then you wonder why they're not responding or they're not happy, right? You, you take them to this board meeting where you spend maybe five minutes on an icebreaker. You have like hummus and goldfish crackers for dinner, then... And then you launch right into the agenda, which is a very to-do, like who's doing this and this and this. Well, that's not how a lot of communities from a to be culture right operate. You know, like I grew up in Vietnam, right? The first, the first question, you know what the first question is when a Vietnamese person asks or meets another Vietnamese person, it's not what do you do, it is where is your home village? And after we talk about the home village, we talk about what is the food specialty of your home village, right? And then, and when did your family migrate from Hanoi or wherever, right? Um, Because those are really important for like our our journeys and getting to know someone is where their home village is. Even if they don't live there, we still want to know where they came from. And then only after like seven or eight questions do you actually ask them like, so what is your your job is? What what is your job? Because that's not nearly as important. So understanding these things, because otherwise you're just going to take someone from a sort of a different cultural mindset and philosophy and you kind of force them into this very white dominant, you know, Western to do way of doing things. And then they're going to leave and they don't, and none of you know why, right? So that's one thing is really understanding these shift, but also, you know, honestly, a lot of people need to leave, right? We keep talking about how do we diversify when really you got to clear the field. There's a lot of people who need to leave. I mean, they may be nice, but their time may be over and it is exhausting to bring some people of color on uh, onto a board, who then have to deal with very, you know, like all these uh, all these folks who need to be dragged, kicking and screaming, um, for any change to happen. So maybe you know, before we, it's like it's like gardening. Everyone's gardening right right now, right? You can't really throw seeds out into the ground till you like do some weeding. Right? That sounds crude, but like <laughs> I'm gonna use this metaphor because I like gardening. Right? So you got you got you got you gotta think about that. Some people need to go.
0: yes and that's why there's supposed to be limitations right the guidelines we're supposed to have those and keep to them you know and not and not give all of these uh yeah no no worries we we can get you in under you know another year or whatever and if it doesn't work it doesn't work if they're not working and it's not working we need to move on um so i wanted to ask you the posts that you've been doing so i read them and they're they're so amazing and you just recently did one on neurodiversity And I thought that was, I was reading it. And for those who are listening, who haven't read it yet, and where can they find it food? Just let everybody know where you can find your. uh...
1: Yeah. Nonprofitaf.com.
0: Okay. And, and, and you posted on LinkedIn and all over too. And you had said about marshmallows, you were writing, you were writing every, you were writing the, um, the blog. And then all of a sudden your mind went on to marshmallows. And I started thinking how, you know, I've always been called the tornado in my family. Right. That's my nickname because I just I'm all over the place. I'm like you. If I write, I can't. My, my brain goes off. And I, I think that and I'm working with a client and neuro, the word neurodiversity came up. You know, we don't really sit there and talk about staff members that way. Right. So and so is not working out well, well for us. You know, they're not bringing in, they're not doing. And in nonprofit worlds, goals and all of that, and we've got to move quickly and we've got to make sure. But we don't sit there and really think like, what is the issue? What 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 is going on? What are the challenges that this person may be facing that we can help them with if we just have the conversation a different way? So can you share a little bit about this?
1: Yeah, this is something that we are starting to talk a little bit more. Neurodiversity, which includes all you know, very different um, different different things, you know, like, like uh, autism, uh, dysgraphia, dyslexia, anxiety, depression, synesthesia, um, all sorts, dyscalculia, other things. Of, and it's basically about how people, we process information differently. And there's been this assumption over just years that we just all process information the same way when we don't, right? If you think about this, uh, like some of the most brilliant scientists and artists of our time, they are probably all neurodivergent, right? So this is not just like a this is, this is not just like a weakness here, right? This is like it's just it's just a different way of thinking process and information. It comes with a lot of strengths that we need, right? Like for me, for example, I get yes, I do get very easily distracted. When I was writing that blog post, I saw a marshmallow that my kids had left under the couch, and I was like, wow. Marshmallows, let me spend several hours just learning about this because I'm obsessed with this now. (laughs) Right. (laughs) And that is, it can be, it can seem very distracting because like in meetings, I may, I may forget what you just said because I'm just like thinking about something else. Or I might forget your name. I, I remember some colleagues who met me like three or four times, and and she was like, You you don't remember who I am, do you? And I'm like, I do remember you. I just can't, I just don't know your name still. And I feel terrible about this. Right. So I think it's a matter of us thinking, OK, we all process information differently. We all communicate in different ways. And it is can be challenging, but it's also a strength. Like for me, I can be distracted, but it also allows me to connect disparate things and come up with analogies that can help people understand things. Because that's that's how you know, my brain, a lot of people's brains work. Right. But if we're going to do this right, then we have to start reexamining all the tools and philosophies that we've been taught. And this this blog post, in particular, was about conflict mediation, right? We've been trained to do things like use I statements, let's clarify what we mean, right? You know, uh, let's let's compromise, etc. You know, like let's make eye contact and verbalize what we feel, etc. Well, the reality is that that might only that may work mostly for neurotypical people, whereas for someone who may have trouble recognizing facial expression and making eye contact, right? That may not work for them very well. They may need more time to think and process information. So it's time for us to really re-examine all of the tools that we've been using for the assumption that they would work for everyone when the reality is that 30% of us are neurodivergent.
0: And and I have to say, when you were taught all the things you were mentioning, I I definitely am that person. Three times I could see somebody, but if if I for what I might remember their name three hours after I saw them, like you know what I mean. But it's in that moment, it, it, you said a lot of things that made so much sense to me, and I it's sometimes nice to hear it from others that you know what you're experiencing those things because processing is different for everyone. And some people may feel bad about themselves if they're not processing like others. And I think it's just, it was a great post and I think it'll hit home for many people. Cause like you said, 30% of the people are around 30% are neurodivergent. Yeah,
1: yeah.
0: I appreciate appreciate that so much. So if you're, you know, with all your wisdom and I know we're coming to, to the end soon but with all your wisdom how do these nonprofit professionals provide themselves with self-care? How do they turn it off? Because when you're mission-focused, Saturdays, Sundays, and vacations don't really always exist. What are your thoughts on that?
1: Well, we, we really need to, like, we a whole bunch of philosophies that we've been operating with, like this idea of professionalism, for example. You know, um, I remember giving a speech just last week and I hadn't worn my, uh, my shoes in a while, right? My My dress shoes. And for like two and a half years, I I never wore dress shoes. And many of us didn't, right? Mm -hmm. I pulled them out and a literal like a moth flew out, like a literal moth flew out of my shoes. (laughs) The moths had been eating my the top layer of my shoes and I couldn't wear them, right? And I felt so terrible going on stage. I was like, okay, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna wear these black sneakers that I got. And I, I went up on stage and I just like I feel terrible. What if someone recognizes my my black sneakers, and, and realize that I'm not wearing dress shoes. And I'm just thinking, why do we, why do we even think like this? We've been, we've been trained to, to think a certain way about everything, about, how, about professionalism, about work and life balance, about separating our work life from our, our home life, about, you know, and I feel like the pandemic should, should really have shaken this up right many of us our, our lives are, come, are blended now there is really no work life separation anymore we had to start thinking about how do we what do we need to do that works best for us and gets us to be able to do our work in a way that is healthiest for us right so that means yeah sometimes you may need to take some time off you should but maybe some other times it means that you you can work at midnight because for a lot of us who are night owls that's when we get our best work done Let's just be okay with that, right? We got to like figure out how we can preserve our energy. But the more important thing I would say is like, I, I think that in, in many ways, the self-care conversation has been really focused on individuals. I like uh, Lisa Sherman and Beth Cantor's book, The Happy Healthy Nonprofits, where they're talking about shifting away from, you know, like self-care into we care, which is like, how do we actually work to ensure environments that, are work, that, that work best for everyone? And that means we have to start looking out for one another for one thing, but it also means like ensuring that we are paid equitably, that we have paid family leave, that we have retirement, that we have vacation time, that we have mental health days, that we have flexible schedules, that, you know, we have like a diaper changing station in in all the bathrooms of every gender. Like these are things that we should all, we got to start thinking about how, how do we create an environment? Where we don't need self care as much,
0: right? No, I, I, I love that whole we culture, right? That's it's it's an it's a whole new culture. I do have a question that I have to ask you because people are going to be wondering. Unicorns in the background. What's the unicorn about?
1: <laughs> the unicorn started as a as a joke. I was I get, I was getting so frustrated talking to this one funder because like he he was like, we want to fund your program, but we don't want to fund. Um, we only want to fund computers. We don't want to fund any staffing. And I was like, who do you, who do you think is going to go and, and run the program? Do you think it's like unicorns elves are just going to appear, you know, and just run this. So I wrote that and I, it kind of stuck with people. We're like, we are unicorns. Everyone expects us to be magical unicorns who just get stuff done with like fairy dust and like not actual resources, like money, you know, <laughs> and, and, and like salaries and stuff. Um, So this is that's where the it's become the mascots of our of of our sector. However, I'm not so sure that we should be sticking around with this mascot, right? I don't want us to be magical creatures. I want us to be like paid people (laughs) with the resources who are rested, who is able to do this, right? Maybe we're more like a platypus, okay? We're like different parts combined into this very agile creature. With that has one venomous foot spur.
0: <laughs> wow, you know a lot about platypuses. I had no idea.
1: <laughs> right. <laughs> right. So like we so we can be agile, we can be in water, we can be up in the land. Um, but if you, you mess with us, we, we're going to stab you with this venomous barb.
0: Ooh, look at that. Okay, we're coming, we're coming into our own. <laughs> I, I love that. But, Before I ask you our last question, is there anything you want to leave our listeners with before I get to that last question?
1: Yeah, to all the nonprofit folks, I love you all. I mean, I yell at our sector a lot, right? I I criticize our sector a lot. But the reality is I love our sector. And our sector is amazing. It's full of amazing individuals who are doing incredible things every single day to make the world better. And oftentimes you are not appreciated at all. You're, You're barely seen. Your work is barely seen. Right. So I just want to let you know that you're amazing. And for our for-profits uh, listeners and, and, you know, you all are doing some great stuff and we appreciate you as donors and, and board members. And at the same time, you know, you really need to kind of understand the challenges that we're working within to make the world better and to stop misplaining to us.
0: Misplaining that I'm, I'm, might be borrowing. I won't steal. I will borrow and you and always say you said it. <laughs>
1: Oh, it's Allison Carney, my friend who coined Oh, Okay, I better write
0: her name down. Poor Allison won't get any credit. Um, <laughs> that's great. I love it. So what is the footprint you're creating right now that you want to leave behind?
1: Uh, I, you know, this is the 10th year of the blog. This is the, yeah, this is the, right. the, the literal 10th year. And I've written over 490 blog posts now. Um, it's been one blog post a week. At almost every single week, except like around Christmas and New Year. And it's been really great. But I feel like my my footprint right now is like ensuring that, trying to figure out how I can, you know, like use my platform to really push for funders to change differently, but also start thinking about how do I like lift up other voices of, of leaders of color in the sector, you know, because there's some really amazing people doing incredible work. And I, I want to start figuring that out.
0: Oh, well, we're all watching you. I know that you do have a, a humongous following there. Um, I'm grateful to those who even introduced me to you. And, and that's how, how we got here today, because you have such a fabulous way of looking at things. Things like I said, I started and we're coming full circle, things that we all want to say, but we're like, are we right about this? Is it just us who feels this way? But then we have you <laughs> who shares the voice and makes us feel like, yes, we'll get on the train. If we're not going to be the one saying it, we'll at least be on your train with you, you know?
1: <laughs> Thank you, Jody. I appreciate that.
0: No, no problem. I appreciate you. Everybody go to and follow Vu on nonprofitaf.com. He's on LinkedIn and Instagram too, I think, right? Instagram and Facebook. And I just so enjoy and you make me laugh. Even in those days when we're having a tough nonprofit day, you make us all laugh.
1: <laughs> Thank you so much, Jody. I-, I had a great time.
0: Thank you so much, Vu. And I want to say what I say at the end of every single podcast. Today is the day. You cannot go back to yesterday and you do not yet own tomorrow. So what steps, small or large, are you taking today to get yourself closer to your goal? Thank you again to Vule for being a part of the podcast today. I so appreciate your insight. Thanks, Vu.
1: Thank you, Jody.